probably see some people as we're leaving, pulling in, going, oh, how was the first service? Oh, it's fine. Go on in. <laughs> if you have a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty. Our ushers will be glad to give you a Bible. We're reading through the book of Genesis but we're not reading it as a novel or just a story, but because the Bible is the word of God. And all of the scriptures, the Bible says, are profitable for us. They show you how to have a relationship with God. They show you how you can have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life through Christ. And then they teach us how to live our lives for the Lord. And we're going through the book of Genesis, and we've called it the faith of our fathers because we're, we're watching how Noah, Abraham, Adam, and, and on and on, how these people related to God. And there's four sections to Genesis, and I've mentioned it a number of times. There's the creation account, and the thing we see there is God's creation was good, and God loves to bless. God is a God of blessing. He blessed Abraham. He blessed Adam in the garden. But then we have the fall, Genesis 3. We have original sin. We see Adam and Eve rebel against God, and, and what a tremendous impact that has on the world. When Adam and Eve sinned and fell, we find then that chapters 5 through 11 show us the spread of corruption. This is what happens because of original sin. Cain kills Abel. The world becomes increasingly rebellious against God to the point where he has to send a flood and, and, and wipe out most of the race. And then Noah comes off the ark. And so last week, we saw our second uh, section on Noah, and we saw that when Noah got off the ark with his, the eight of them come off, we're expecting, wow, let's do a redo. Let's get it right this time. But almost immediately, we see the effects of sin and corruption. We see that God gave him a commission, remember? Go and fill the earth now and, and replenish and multiply. And then he gave him a covenant, and I'm going to put a rainbow to remind you that I will restrain from destroying the earth with a flood. But then Noah gets drunk. And Ham exposes something morally decadent, it seems, that causes God to bring another curse. So last week we noticed that the God who loves to bless also brings his discipline and judgment on moral abandonment. Well, this morning we're going to look at chapters 10 and 11, and we're going to see that God also brings judgment on pride and rebellion. And the interesting thing is as we read these chapters, these aren't just for us to go, boy, those people were bad. It's to remind us that we have a little bit of that in us. We have a little bit of Canaan in us. We've got a little bit of, of the Tower of Babel in us. And so we have to come to grips with our own sin and with our own, what are we going to do about it? Now, the interesting thing is, is you look at Genesis chapter 10, chapter 10, you'll notice that it's a lot whiter in your Bible. This is a, a, an often neglected chapter. Matter of fact, for some of you, like, 10 and 11, these pages are stuck together. This section doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's actually very interesting. So it's all one unit. It begins in 10.1. These are the records of the generations. Now here's what, here's what Moses is going to do. He's going to show the three sons of, of Noah and how they spread out from the Middle East there, from the promised land, and it explains to us where the races come from and languages, Europeans and and. Um, Asians and Africans. And so it's interesting, but it's not primarily simply to teach us about genealogical records. 
It's to show us that the God who loves to bless has just pronounced a curse on the Canaanites. And this God who has cursed the Canaanites are going to become the enemies of the Israelites, the people whom he's blessed. And what we're going to find in chapter 10 is the genealogy of the three sons, but then we're going to come to chapter 11 and he's going to regroup. He's going to go back to somewhere in the middle of this genealogy and say, let me tell you the story of the Tower of Babel. So let's pray and we'll start in in chapter 10. Father, as we have worshiped in song and giving, now we bow before you because we want to sit at the feet of Jesus. I want to be taught of the Lord. I want to be led by the Holy Spirit. And Father, we believe that the Holy Spirit meets with us when Christians gather And he wants to feed us. He wants to shepherd us, comfort us. He wants to stir us up and encourage us, convict us, and grow us and equip us to serve you. So may your Holy Spirit turn our eyes on Jesus now. He came to glorify Christ, and we're gathered in the name of Jesus. We pray for our country, that you will suspend your judgment on America, but rather that you will be merciful and revive the churches in America, and for the sake of the believers, that you might do a a miraculous revival in the last days. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the world who are suffering deeply persecution. May you encourage their hearts. And Lord, perhaps by your grace, you will save some today, as the Lord adds to the church those who are being saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin in chapter 10, verse 1. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them. So he's going to start with Japheth, and Japheth is going to be the father of the European nation. So what I'm going to do is put a map up here real quick. And you don't need to be able to see all of the little details, but you'll notice where the Red Sea is, and to the left of the Red Sea, that would be considered modern-day Egypt, right? You see Egypt. And then a little bit further up is where the modern-day Palestine or the Promised Land or Israel is. You see along the coastline Canaan and then a list of of, uh, names there. Then the blue in circle or kind of that bluish circle, those are going to be the descendants of Japheth, okay, which this map goes further. This is a map from the ESV study Bible, so if you want to study it in more detail, that's where you can find it. But up further would be the European nations. Those are the descendants of Japheth. So we're going to start with that. The green are the descendants of Ham and then Canaan. And these are going to be primarily the enemies of the Lord. And then the people over here to the right, which you can't really see the difference, but there's a different shape of the box and a different color in the study Bible. Over in the east in Mesopotamia, where modern-day Babylon is, that's where the descendants of, of Shem are, the Shemites, the the Semitic people, out of whom would come Eber, who would be the father of the Hebrews. So just kind of get the big picture in your mind. So, so Moses is writing to the Israelites. Now, right now, the Israelites are just on the east side of Canaan. They're about to move into Canaan, and they're going to displace the Canaanites, okay? And so even to this day, there's still tremendous conflict about whose land is this? to belong to the Palestinians or to the Jews? Well, rather than look horizontally to go, who who gets it? The real issue is, it's God's land. And it's God's land, and it goes to whoever God chooses to give it to. And that's revealed to us in the Bible. But having said that, 
we need to understand that these Canaanites and Amorites, Jebusites, which we're going to read in this chapter, these are not innocent people. These are incredibly evil people. And part of the reason that God is removing them is because he's had enough of their sin. In fact, when Abram first came into the land of Canaan, God said, I'm going to give you this land, but not yet, because the sins of these Canaanites is not yet full. It has not reached up to heaven yet. So the Jewish people went down into Egypt for 400 years. But when their sins were completed, that's when God took Moses and led them back up to go into the promised land. So we start with the Japhethites, and these are the fathers of modern-day Europeans. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshnek, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphah and Turgamah, verse 4. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. Now one thing to note here is that when we're going through this chapter, sometimes he'll use the sons of, but he doesn't name a person. He'll name either a people group, a city, a tribe, a location, or even a language. For example, as we come down further, he'll talk about Amorites, Jebusites, and so forth. These are not individuals. There wasn't a guy named Amorite, but these are people groups. So he's toggling back and forth between names, people groups, and languages. So, verse 5 says, From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. So the coastlands would be particularly up in the northern section there, the Greeks and so forth. So if you're, if you're a Greek and everything comes from the Greek, remember from my big fat Greek wedding, um, you're, you're a descendant of, of Japheth, all right? So now we come to the sons of Ham. Now remember, God had cursed Ham and Canaan. And these are going to be the people that are primarily down in Africa. But you'll notice all of them, the Canaanites and all of these enemies of Israel, are in God's land that he wants back, that he's going to take possession of. Except one guy. Look where Nimrod is. How'd he get over there? And what's he doing over there? And we'll look at that in this passage. So start with me in verse 6. And the sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Okay, so you can see Cush is way down here, and we'll read about the Cushites in the Bible down in south of Egypt, right, and put over there. But particularly notice Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Siba and Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtika, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. And then all of a sudden he says, now Cush, let me just mention this, he begat or became the father of Nimrod. Okay, now Today, to be called a Nimrod, probably, what's wrong with you, a Nimrod? That's not a compliment. I think the Hebrew word has something along the lines of a rebelliousness. But notice the text says, he became a mighty one on the earth. Is that good or bad? You know, to be a mighty one would all depend on whose perspective that was. Because that which is highly esteemed by man, the Bible says, is sometimes detestable in the sight of God. So, remember a few weeks ago when Bob preached from Genesis 6, the fallen ones and the mighty ones. So, but then it says in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter. You go, okay, so the, the guy could shoot deer, right? Well, before the Lord, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So, so you're sort of left with this tension of going, is that a good thing? He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. I don't think God was going, wow, man, that guy can shoot an arrow, right? 
So there's this tension here because in no way is Nimrod going to be presented as a good guy, okay? But notice what it says about Nimrod. Therefore, it said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that God's gone, man, I love this guy. Because look at verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, from which we're going to come back and see the chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So what we know then is that one of Ham's descendants, Nimrod, he decided to go east, young man. Right? He decided he was going to go over and live among the Semites. Right? And we'll, we'll come back to that in chapter 11. But don't miss this guy because that's going to be significant. Then verse 10 says, the beginning of his kingdom. Now wait, kingdom? I thought God was the king. I didn't read anything about God saying, okay, now make sure to build your kingdom. Right? In fact, he said in chapter 9, go fill the earth. Seems to me that the big thing is he wanted to spread them out. So when we come to chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, they're going, let's build a city. Right? right away, we start going, wait a minute, is a city a good thing or a bad thing? Okay? So we're just sort of being introduced here to what we'll come back to. Verse 11, and from that land he went forth into Assyria and he built Nineveh. Okay, now again, these are ominous foreshadowings. Nineveh, is that, well, let me think about Nineveh. Is that a good city or a bad city? Not the place that later on, what's that guy that got swallowed by a well? Oh yeah, Jonah, the great city Nineveh, which became the nemesis and enemy and, and blight to the Israelites. From that land he went to Nineveh, Riboth, and Ur, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela. That's the great city. And Mizraim became the father of Ludum, verse 13, Ananiam, Lebahiam, Naphtulim, Pathushram, Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines, and Kapturim. As I was reading this, my daughter's expecting our third grandchild, and they don't have a name yet. And I'm going, let me see if I can find one here. <laughs> Nothing yet, right? Matter of fact, there was a, a young lady. We've got two young ladies now that are staying in in the promise of grace, the home front when mothers, um, I met a new one this morning, and I said, you know, have you, to, to both of them, I said, do you have any names picked out? I said, Tom's a good name, and she says, well, I'm having twins. I said, yeah, that'd be awkward, Tom and Tom, you know, that'd be <laughs> a little weird. So I'll just take one of them. Verse 15, Canaan, uh-oh, here we go, the Canaanites, he became the father of Sidon, his firstborn in Heth. Now notice this next list, because you'll go, wait, I heard these names before. Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites or Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, Hamathites, and afterwards the families of the Canaanite, Canaanite, see that, were spread abroad. And the territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as far as you go towards Gerar and as far as Gaza. I want you to stop there for a moment, look back up here. Look where most of these people groups are, okay? This is where Israel is right now. They're reading the book of Genesis and they're going, okay, these are all the descendants of, of Ham who was cursed. And God's gone, they're on my land and they're wicked and I'm going to remove them. But then he even goes more detail. Look at verse 19. He says, oh, by the way, as far as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and you're going, Sodom and Gomorrah? And by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah, most archaeologists think, is somewhere around where the Dead Sea is. Now, you can't really see that, but right around where the Girgashites are. There's a lot of sulfur still and salt in the land of, 
of the Dead Sea area where they think Sodom and Gomorrah was. At the time, though, that was a well-watered land before God cursed Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and one commentary suggested, don't miss the link between cursed be Canaan and Ham and some sense of a sexual sin, right? And then here we have a foreshadowing of the Sodomites, which we'll, we'll read about in Genesis 18 when God rains brimstone and fire on these people who have perverted his original plan for sex. So, keep reading. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, verse 20, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. All right, pause. Now we're going to come to the Shemites, the Semitic people, verse 21. And to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, which later appears to be, from what is often speculated, He's the founding father of where, where the idea of Hebrew came from, the, the Eber, the, the Hebrew people. And the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, Aram. And the sons of Aram were Uz, Hull, Gether, Mash. I guess Hull would work. That'd be pretty good. This is my son, Hull. Right? Sounds kind of manly. Arpachshad became the father of Shelah. Shelah became the father of Eber. And two sons were born to Eber, and the name of the one was Peleg. Now, it's not Pegleg here, okay? So don't get him a job at IHOP. It's Peleg. Peleg. Now, interestingly, Peleg means division. Division. Why would God name him division? Now, notice the, the next phrase, verse 25. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. You go, what do you mean the earth was divided? Is this what... Is this what I learned about when I studied world history and geography when the tectonic plates of the earth were pulled apart and that's where we got the continents? Probably not. Probably here we're talking about the Tower of Babel. So in the days of Peleg, whose name meant division, that's when the nations were scattered. So what we're going to learn is this is the origin of the division of nations and races and languages, which is really fun because you read the book of Genesis. Last week, we learned the origin of the steakhouse, right? We found that it was Noah who had the first steak and ale, right? Because he's the guy who God said, now you can eat meat. This week, we're going to learn the, the, the origin of Rosetta Stone. You know, how are they making all their money? Because of the vestiges of sin that brought about these language divisions, so you're like, man, I'm learning how life works just from reading the Bible. Jacquin became the father of Omaldad, Shalef, Harzamath, Jerah, verse 27, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophor, Havilah, Jobab, and all these were the sons of Jacquin. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go towards Sifor, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. You're like, okie dokie, gotcha. So we've got the Canaanites, the Japhethites, who are kind of going to fade out, and then the Shemites, who are over in Mesopotamia, which next week we're going to find that God's going to pick a guy named Abram out of Mesopotamia and Ur and say, one over, I'm going to bring you over and give you this land. But as you come to chapter 11, it's still the same unit. Now the author's going to say, I want us to focus in on an event that took place that brought about the division of the nation. So look with me in verse 1. 
Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. So, for you Hispanics who go, we're going to speak Spanish in heaven. You know, maybe it was Spanish. We don't know, but probably unlikely that it was Spanish. Not sure what this language was. Literally in Hebrew, it says they all were of one lip, right? Verse 2, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, that would be way over where Nimrod is. So, hey, they're doing what God told them to do. They get off the ark in Ararat, and God says, spread out and start multiplying. So they're, they're journeying east, but they come to this, this big plain, this flat plain in Shinar, and they settled there. Mm, good or bad? Well, verse 3. Now we see the heart of man. This is, this is where we're going to get kind of a look in the mirror at ourselves. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Now, you know, you go, well, what's going on here? In fact, there's a, there's a Babylonian account of this, right? So this isn't just written about in the Bible. In the Babylonian account, it says that these, now it's not telling the exact same details, but it's saying these people spent a whole year just making bricks, right? Just making bricks, just making bricks. Now, maybe it was a year, but whatever it was, they were beginning, because think about it, it's like a little kid when he's starting to learn ingenuity. He's starting to learn about his own abilities, starting to learn creativity. That's part of being made in the image of God. So these guys are starting to kind of get the idea like, hey, you know, Legos. Like we could make these things and we could start stack, we can start building, right? And so now they have this enormous potential. But, but notice verse 4. And they said to one another, come, let's build for ourselves a city. And you go, a city? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I thought God said, go fill the earth, you know. Yesterday I spoke at a Haitian church. I think it was called Irvington or something like that, up by Orange, New Jersey, up by the Newark area. People everywhere, right? You're in the inner city. It's so crowded, right? And, and, and that's where you go, we can't afford any more kids. There's no room, right? But then you, then you drive through Kansas, and you're like, man, are we really overpopulated? Why is everybody conglomerated here in the Northeast? Move over, right? So, so, so the whole enigma of cities in the Bible, if you're Tim Keller, everything's about the city, I'm not so sure that even the idea of city itself is a good thing. It looks to me this idea to stay together and to, and to you know, build this city was due to insecurity, we're going to see that, and pride and hubris. And you're like, where is that? Well, let's keep reading. Why did they want to build a city? Well, let's make a tower whose top will reach into heaven. So, so notice here, they didn't just want to make a tower, they want to make a city. Okay, so, but within this city, we're also going to make a tower. Now, wh what's this? You know, are they all taking proposals? Hey, who, who wants to get the next contract to be the architect? No, there's something they're doing here. They're building these towers. Now, again, this didn't happen in a vacuum. And one of the blessings of archaeology is that people dig up stuff and they find out, well, this is the kind of stuff that they did. So in my mind, I'm picturing Will this look like the World Trade Center, or was it more like, you know, the Twin Towers? And you're going, well, first of all, get American, you know, modern-day construction out of your mind. So we want to put up a, a picture of what archaeologists think it looked like. And they're like, why would they come up with that? Well, because they've dug up stuff like this. This is called a ziggurat. 
ziggurat. And this is what people build in those days. And some of them are still in existence. Now, this particular one, you can find the, the picture and description of this in the ESV study Bible. Okay? But these ziggurats were not just, um, not, not cigarettes, ziggurats. These were not just like a tower in the sense that we would think of. There's a lot going on here. First of all, the text says, let's build a tower that will reach into heaven. And we're going, seriously? That's it? That's the best you could do? Now understand something. That's probably the one that they dug up, I think they said is like 70 or 80 feet. So seven stories. We'll be like, my vacation house is seven stories. You know, where's the Empire State Building? Well, come on, give them a break. Think about when this was, right? But the other thing we know from extra-biblical literature is that there was religious significance to this, that, that they weren't just building these things for no reason, and that at the top, the ziggurats often had some sort of a temple to a god. And it's interesting because in extra-biblical Babylonian literature, they describe the events of the confusion and so forth, but very differently, completely differently from how the Bible... And this is where unbelievers will come along and say, ah, you know, the Bible's just one of many books taking a stab at what happened back there. Well, you're welcome to hold to that view, or the Bible is the word of God inspired by Moses and holy men of God who wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. It's the truth, right? If it's not the truth, then let's all go home. Why waste our time at a book club? But if it's the word of God, then I better bow to it and say, hey, I don't care what other people think. I'm going with God's word. And the Holy Spirit's the only one that can convince you of that. Paul says, I thank God when you received my message. You didn't receive it as the word of men, but as it is the word of God. So I recognize some of you may, as we're reading this, going, ah, that's just something men wrote. But I want to throw out to you the possibility for you to reconsider that, yeah, men wrote it, but it was inspired by God. And if it was, then regardless of what you used to believe, you and I better bow to the book and say, Lord, show me what the Bible says. Amen? All right. So having said that, notice what they want to do here. Now we're starting to see they don't just want to have a tower to build to heaven, but it says, let's make a name for ourselves. Hmm. That doesn't sound good. Let's make a name for ourselves. The book of Psalms talks about how godless men want to preserve their reputation through building a city. In fact, one commentary said this, Two characteristics of culture itself. Number one, are a hatred of anonymity, right? And then secondly, a desire for fame. So hey, let's, let's build a name for ourselves. Let's not just be like everybody else is just spreading out in the earth. And you know, do you sort of feel like, wait, I sort of understand that. Think about how, how we grow up insecure, wanting to find, you know, Am I going to be the class clown or the brain or the athlete? Or am I going to be strong or good looking? I don't just want to be anonymous. I just don't want to just be one of the group. But we sort of see the rumblings of depravity here in that they wanted to establish themselves in rebellion. See, let's not look at this as, hey, that's kind of neat. This is rebellion. This is man raising their fist. God says, spread out. And they go, no, we're not going to spread out. We're going to build a city. We're going to establish our reputation. We're going to make a name for ourselves. In fact, notice, we're going to do this intentionally, verse 4 says, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Wait, I thought that's what God wanted you to do. You, you, you see why, why I'm telling you here, this is, this is man in his rebellion. 
And, and what we're going to find here is that this city, Babel, becomes the, the picture throughout Scripture of people in rebellion against God, people who are burger-kinging their lives and saying, I don't have to do it God's way, you narrow-minded Bible thumpers. I'll do it my way. Things are different now. So by the time we get to the book of Revelation, we see full-blown Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, the system of man and the merchants and everybody in rebellion against God. And then we read, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great city, the city who, who, who spread immorality and, and rebellion. And that makes way for God to bring in his heavenly city. So folks, we live in a world that's in rebellion against God, right? Most of the people that are on this planet are in opposition to God. They're few and far between people who are bowing and submitting and believing and following the living God. So, what's God going to do about that? Is he just going to go, oh, you guys? No. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, when the Bible says stuff like that, we call that anthropomorphisms. God, God, God's described in human ways so that we can sort of identify with him. God knows everything. He's this almighty spirit being who's everywhere. So, so he's not going, what are they doing down there? I can't see. But, but, but even though God's everywhere, the scriptures teach us that his presence can be different in certain places. He can be present to bless or present to judge. It's kind of like when we say, Lord, be with me today. Now, theologically, we're like, why would you pray that? He already said, I'm with you always. But, but so when God's sort of, he, he's everywhere, but he's kind of coming down to, to say, what's going on here, right? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people. Now, don't, don't miss this verse. This is very interesting. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. Now, this is God talking. Look what he says. Think of the potential he says, now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. I find that very striking. That people, because they're made in the image of God, if they put their minds together, if they work together, have unlimited potential, have enormous potential. The problem is, apart from God, it's potential for evil. But don't miss this verse, right? Because I think this is sort of painting the way for, hey, is that true of Christians? When Christians work together? When Christians, when God sort of undoes the effects of Babel and he brings us together into one people under Christ who are working together? So God says in verse seven, come, let's go down. Now the fact that he says us is intriguing. Now please don't do this. Don't go, see, that proves the Trinity. Because God said us. First of all, when you read us, that could be three, four, five, two, right? So this doesn't prove the Trinity. What it does do, though, is it intimates that God, who's one God, exists in more than one person. God's not talking to himself because he's a schizophrenic, right? But we learn from chapter one, he says, let us make man in our image. Well, why did he say that? Well, Jewish people would say, well, there's only one God, so he was talking to angels, we talked about this. Angels aren't made in the image. Men aren't made in the image of angels. And we know nowhere in scripture that angels can create. So we sort of, God's beginning to unfold for us that he's one God in more than one person, right? Let us go down and confuse their language 
that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and, and they stopped building the city. Now, that's kind of interesting. God could have come down, and he could have nuked that building. He could have blown it up. Don't you ever? He could have knocked their toys down. But instead, he just confuses and confounds them. And now they're going, pasame un ladrillo. I think that's what pass me a brick is in Spanish. But don't correct me, because I know that was wrong. Right? Is that okay, Michael? Close enough, close enough, right? So, and the guy's like, what did you just say? And so now there's this confusion, and, and, and they're going to migrate out. They're just going to leave their rebellion, okay? And so as this section ends, chapter 11, you're going, so things aren't good in Dodge. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the people in that day, right? Because now we've got the stage set for a rebellious people group scattered all over the earth, disenfranchised from one another and from God, and we're going, man, this thing looks like it's going to end up just like it did the first time, where it's going to get so evil, God's going to have to destroy it. But this chapter is painting a backdrop for us of what's coming next week, because next week we're going to find God zeroing in on one individual, Abram, and saying, listen, in the midst of all this corruption, I'm going to create a new nation, and that nation is going to be my vehicle to bring blessing through Christ to all the nations. So what Moses is going to do now is he's going to regroup, and he's going to go back and look again at the Shemites, right? Can we go back to that other map, Rob? He's going to go back the rest of this chapter to the Shemites, but because he wants to get us ready for one individual, Abram, all right? So notice where Nimrod is, Babel's over there. Abram's going to be right over in this area. So let's finish this chapter and then we'll talk about the applications. Verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. He was 100 years old, became the father of Arpachshad. Two years after the flood, Shem lived 500 years and he became the father of Arpachshad. He had other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to read all of these names, but I do want you to note something here. That longevity has greatly decreased. Remember when Bob preached from chapter 5? These people live in 5, 6, 7, 900 years. After the flood, longevity significantly has decreased. But notice as we come down to verse 24, we're going to narrow down to a people group. Nahor, he lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram. Note, that's going to be a significant guy, Abram, who's later going to have his name changed to Abraham. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot, which is going to be Abram's nephew. And Abram, his name means exalted father. And Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now look at verse 29. This is really interesting. So we're over here in Mesopotamia, but verse 29 says, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, who's later going to be Sarah. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iskar. And Sarah was barren. Now that's going to be interesting because Sarah was barren. And we're going to find the same thing's going to be true of Rebecca. And we're going to see this idea of barrenness and then blessing. But here's verse 31. It says, Terah took Abram his son 
and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah's daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now look here, in order to enter the land of Canaan. Now that's important, because now here's Abram and his pop and his, and his peeps over here, right? And it says, Terah took Abram to enter the land of Canaan. Now when you fast forward to the book of Acts, the book of Acts says the God of glory appeared to Abram in Ur, and he said, you, Abram, are to leave your people and to go to the land of Canaan. So we've got to go, all right, so is it really Terah just gone? You know, let's just move. I hear there's some good real estate location, location. Well, actually, it's the call of Abram. But what we learn is you can't just cut across the Arabian desert, right? So if you wanted to get to Canaan, you went up the Fertile Crescent along the Tigris River. And up at the top there is a city called Haran. And in Haran is where Abram and his father and Lot moved. And then his father dies up there. And then God brings him down into Canaan. So notice verse 31. Terah took Abram his son, Lot of Haran his grandson, Sarai his daughter-in-law, and they went, into the, and they went to, from Ur of the Chaldees in order to let her enter the land of Canaan. They went as far as Haran. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And you go... Okay, okay, I better come back next week. Please come back next week. Chapter 12 is so important. Having said that, though, you go, so what do I do with this, right? What, what's the point here? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. I want to suggest two important things to think about. Number one, that as we read about the Tower of Babel, last year we had to do a heart check for moral abandonment. This morning, I want you to consider that we all need to do a heart check for prideful rebellion. Because this is exactly what human nature says to our heart. It's a terrible idea when people say, follow your heart. The book of Romans says our hearts are hostile and in enmity towards God. And so what these people did in building Babel is really simply living for yourself. It's just leaving God out of your life. Okay? It's... it's, it's it's even being religious, right? They probably had this temple on the top of the Tower of Babel. Oh, we're so religious, but it's Burger King. It's my way. And what we learn from this is anytime you decide to live opposite of God or leaving him out, you're going to end up in confusion and your rebellion is going to ultimately lead to your destruction. That's why Jesus said, if any man hears my words and does them, you're building your life on a solid rock. So I want to ask, first of all, this morning, if in any way you've been living your way rather than God's way, how's that been working for you? Or is this morning a good day to say, you know what, I don't want to have to learn the hard way. To come to God on his terms, to come to God through Jesus, to come to God in repentance and faith that says, Lord, I've tried to find my way to you by building up my religious efforts. I read a great quote that really summarizes it. You're never nearer to God than when you're lower, right? These people are exalting themselves, doing it their way. And that's what we all do at times. And God says, I resist the proud. I humble the proud but I exalt the humble. So I, 
I think that the main thing that I, I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see here as we think about Babel is to ask ourselves, what areas of your life as a Christian are you still in rebellion against God? Is there something that God's been saying, it's time to stop that? That's not my will. You, you understand. That's not the direction I want you to go. And some of us are, hey, my reputation's more important. What would people think, right? It's time to surrender that. Maybe for some of you, God's been leading you. He wants you to start doing something. You're going this way, and God's going, no, I want you to go this way. God told these people, go and spread out, and they're going, no, we're going to stay together. We're going to... And, and why? Because they wanted to preserve their own security and their own reputation. And sometimes we can come up with good reasons why we're doing it our way. But the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And when the Bible talks about trusting in the Lord, that includes submitting to him. That includes bowing the knee and saying, you're my Lord Jesus. You're not my genie Jesus. You're my Lord Jesus. And if I'm going to trust you, that means I'm going to follow what you say in your word. I'm going to follow what your spirit leads me. And the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. That's when we usually get in trouble, when we figure we've got to help God, or if we do it this way, it's not going to work. And so this morning, as the Spirit of God is at work, I'm asking you, is God speaking to you and saying, you know what, there's areas of pride and rebellion that I want you to bow your knee and walk away from Babel. And trust me, this isn't just some, you tell them pagans, Tom, tell them unsaved people. I'm telling me, right? The Bible says we never can know the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor he shows and the joy he bestows or for those who will trust and obey. So ask yourself this morning, are there some areas where I'm kind of off the altar in rebellion against God, kind of doing it my way? There's no greater place to be than surrender to Christ. And that's both a crisis and a process because you say, oh, I already did that, Pastor Tom, at camp. I threw my stick in the fire. Who cares what happens at camp 10 years ago? What matters is today, am I willing to lay aside my own desires and to live for Jesus? See, the heart of Christian discipleship, the Bible says, is Christ died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. And so I learned from, the, from these people that pride and rebellion and saying, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to live with this person. I don't care what the Bible says. If I want to take this or smoke that or drink this, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not, if I'm honest on my taxes, you, no, listen, that's a dead end. Jesus' way is the best way. And a broken and contrite heart he'll never despise. You're never nearer to Christ than when we're lower. When we humble ourselves and say, Lord, I messed up. Would you forgive me? I don't deserve to have a marriage like this. I'm oh, wait. No, Lord, you show me. I submit to you. That's a great thing to think about. We're never nearer to God than when we're Lord. But secondly, I think there's a really cool vision here of what churches can do when they're unified. See, if God says these godless rebels, nothing's impossible for them because they're working together. Think about the enormous potential of God's people when we stop worrying about who gets the credit or whether I get recognized, and when we pull together and shoulder to shoulder, we're working for Christ. 
You know, I read an interesting comment someone made about this Tower of Babel confusion. They said Pentecost is a trailer or a harbinger, a preview of what it's going to be like in the celestial city in the kingdom of God because we're gonna all going to come together again. We're all going to speak one language. But you see, here's the beauty of the gospel. In the meantime, think of how this world is divided in racial tension, social tension, economic division, the rich and the poor, even men and women, who's better, who's stronger, you know, the glass ceiling. The Bible says in Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no Parthian, Scythian, slave or free man, male or female, but we're all one in Christ. And this is the beauty of the gospel, to think that God takes sinful, rebellious people who are very different, and we look around and we go, what's wrong with these people? They're so weird. And you know what? They're thinking the same thing about you. We're all weird. We all have idiosyncrasies. We're all very different. And we sort of just go, oh, so when we get Christians, we have black churches, white churches, Hispanic churches, Chinese churches. And even though we're all speaking the same language, we're like, we're just different. And God's going, really? Ephesians 4 says this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, people of God, to strive together, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. These are exciting days for our church. And I believe God's pouring out His Spirit and we're seeing people saved and growing. We're seeing more and more people connecting in community. And if you're just sitting on a chair and just coming, you're not engaged. God's inviting you to be a part of His community. But then He's inviting us all to say, hey, are you working together? See, the idea is not let's build an empire here so people can go, wow, look at, I'll always remember Bible Fellowship Church. We're spreading the fame of Jesus. We're advancing the gospel of grace. We're seeing men and women, boys and girls coming to know Christ and then hopefully sending people out to bless the nations, to advance the gospel. And so what a privilege it is for us to be part of a Christian community but that community doesn't just happen by accident. It takes all of us to clothe ourselves with humility, to humble ourselves, to submit to God and one another. And it starts in the home. How in the world are we gonna get along here with one another in church if we haven't even learned how to get along at home with our spouse and with our children? No elbowing at this point. Because that's the whole point. You're like, see, pastor's talking to you. No, he's talking to all of us. He's talking to me. So let's pray that God will bring more and more unity, more and more spirit-filled humility and patience and forbearance, and that God will unify us so that we work together, and that at the end of the day, Paul says this, to God who is able to do beyond all that we ask or think, to him be the glory in Christ Jesus through the church. And so this morning, I send you out with the Lord Jesus to say, hey, start with your family. Pray for unity. Humble yourselves. Apologize. Do what you gotta do to, to try to restore unity. And then let's continue to pray that we'll be plugged into Christian community. Get involved with others. Join a small group. Don't just show up and wave. And then let's pray and give and work together. There's no telling what God wants to do through us as we humble ourselves before him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just leave us 
down here scattered and confused, but that you sent Christ. And the Bible says we were continually straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd of our souls. So Lord, for those of us who are believers, I pray that you will forgive us for our own rebellion and pride where we refuse to submit to you. Lord, pry back our little fingers and help us to let go and trust you. Help us to put our pride away and to bow, knowing, Lord, that you're so gracious, knowing that your will is good and acceptable and perfect. May we join together, me too, Lord, at the foot of the cross, may we kneel together and say, have your own way, Lord. Have your own way in our lives. And then for Bible Fellowship Church, we thank you for Bob and the elders and the pastors and the leaders and for all of the gifted people that are working together here. Lord, may you unify us. May you use us as families, as small groups, as, as a church to make a great impact for the kingdom of God. Lord, you don't need us, but we need you desperately. And while our heads are still bowed, if God's speaking to you, I want to invite you, don't look around, please, but if God's speaking to you and you know that you've been away from him and you want to return to him, you want to surrender to him, you want to, this morning, give your life to Jesus, if that's you this morning and you say, Pastor, God spoke to me and I want to, I want to submit to Christ and experience forgiveness, I want to experience his eternal life, I'm ready to follow him, would you just look up at me for a moment, raise your hand so I can see you, so I can pray for you. It's not, a, it's not any pressure, but if God speaks to you, yes, anyone else, you say, the Lord spoke to me, and I want to follow Jesus today. I want to give my will over to him and trust him. Anybody else that God's speaking to you, and you want me to pray? Yes, anyone else? Father, thank you for the word of God and its power to change. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel of grace. May these folks who have made a decision to bow to the Lord and to trust in the Savior, may they, may they be comforted to know that Jesus offers eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. And for the rest of us, Father, I thank you so much that you didn't come down and nuke the Tower of Babel and just say, I'm done with these people, but that you're so patient. Be merciful to us, Lord Jesus, and help us to spread the gospel of grace. Help us to pray and live in unity and to work together shoulder to shoulder until you come again. Thank you for our people. Thank you for our families. Thank you for the healing and mercy that Christ affords to all those who are brokenhearted. Jesus, be our Lord, be our God. Build this church for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.